Welcome to the Sui Generis Show, your unique perspective on everything related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Eric Amaro, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, the FBI releases reports on hate crimes reaching record highs. The notorious mobster James Whitey Bulger's family sues the United States Bureau of Prisons for failing to protect him while in federal custody. And Brandy Murrah of the Alabama State Department of Human Services has been sentenced to 15 years in prison for falsifying drug testing results. In segment two, as promised, we'll be talking about the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution's Double Jeopardy Clause. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Spotify, and follow us on all of our social media channels. Look to the law office of BrianJones.com for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. So Erica, did you see in the news this week that the FBI released a report finding that hate crimes in the United States have reached the highest level in more than a decade? I did see that, Brian. And quite honestly, I'm not surprised because we have got a lot of unrest in this country, racial, political, and otherwise. And I'm not surprised, but how did the FBI reach this conclusion? Data on hate-motivated killings has been collected by the FBI since the 1990s. The data is collected about these crimes because it's critical to understanding if policy and laws are working. It creates a body of evidence for evidence-based approaches to criminal prosecutions, confinements, and post-release supervisions. So this is a, this is a report um, based on about two decades worth of tracking. What is the significance in the numbers? There were 51 hate crime murders and 7,314 hate crimes in 2019. The only year that comes close to that number is 2008, which had a record number of hate crimes that year of 7,783. The FBI defines a hate crime as a crime that's motivated by bias based on race, religion, sexual orientation, or some other classified categories. Now, it's important to note that these numbers are an undercount because reporting to the FBI is voluntary and only certain jurisdictions participate in the collection of the data. Only uh, about 2,200 agencies out of 15,000 participating across the country reported data in this survey. Um, an investigation in 2016 revealed that more than 2,700 city police and county sheriff's departments had never submitted a single hate crime report for the FBI's annual crime tally during the previous six years. This is yet again an area where Ohio is surprisingly progressive in the criminal justice system. Ohio is third in the country for reported hate crimes, which as we see, many jurisdictions don't even report. That is quite startling to hear the numbers that were reported and to realize that it is so underreported that the real numbers would just knock your socks off. So why is this information about hate crimes so important to criminal defense? Right, it doesn't make sense. Why would a criminal defense attorney care that there's more crime reported? Well, 
the reason is because hate crime charge enhancements have very serious repercussions for the accused. For example, in Ohio, ethnic intimidation is an enhancement to any crime. Misdemeanors are covered by 2927.12, the ethnic intimidation statute, which enhances any misdemeanor charge to one degree higher. Um, and, and especially at, that is most frequently applied to crimes like aggravated menacing, which is making a death threat against somebody, menacing, which is making an otherwise threat of causing somebody physical harm, criminal damaging, which is most people think of as vandalism, um, criminal mischief and telecommunications harassment. Now, felonies are covered by 2929.12, which, which is the sentencing statute here in Ohio. The seriousness uh, and recidivism factors, the, the main way that judges determine what an appropriate sentence is under Ohio law, have specific findings aimed at prejudice based on race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, or religion. And that fact can be held against a defendant at sentencing and can be used as a specific finding, not only to support a lengthier prison term, but transfer somebody from a, a sentence of probation to a sentence of prison based on that, that factor in and of itself. Now, it's important for anybody accused of a hate crime to ensure that they have representation that's willing to hold up a mirror and demonstrate to them why their bias and prejudice is problematic. And an attorney in a law firm such as ours that will take a holistic approach to mitigating the consequences um, and or establishing the innocence of the accused person. I mean, it's just a really good point to make here, Brian, where if you are accused of a crime and it has any circumstances, there's a lot of different factors in defending crimes. And one of them being all these hate crimes, I'm sure that you're seeing a big uptick in those types of cases. It's really important for someone to pick up the phone and call your office because you have the strategies already available to come up with the best outcome. Well, I appreciate you saying that, Erica. That's absolutely accurate. Having the systems in place before the client walks in the door is critically important to uh, getting success and successful results and satisfying the client's goals after they've hired. So, Erica, did you also see in the news the story about Whitey Bulger and his murder uh, while in federal custody in the United States Penitentiary, Hazleton? Yes, I did. And I have to tell you, Brian, I actually uh, lived in one of Whitey Bulger's neighborhoods at one point uh, around here in Boston. And he's been quite a big name. I know he's inspired characters that are portrayed in movies. Uh, it's, it's someone that I think has been in the news for a very long time. So to hear this case come up, um, it was quite intriguing to me. I'd love to hear your thoughts. So Whitey was found beaten to death the same day he was transferred to the United States Penitentiary at Hazleton. And his family now claims that the Bureau of Prisons set him up and they filed a wrongful death and pain and suffering suit. Now the wrongful death applies to civil actions which uh, are claims for damages sought against a party for causing a death, typically when a criminal action has failed or, or is not attempted. Uh, 
The pain and suffering is a legal term for the physical and emotional stress and, and agony caused by the injury. The physical pain, temporary and permanent limitations on activity, uh, potential shortening of life, depression, both physical and mental scarring. In this case, the pain and suffering refers to the pain and terror that Whitey must have suffered while being beaten to death with a sock full of locks, um, and likely the fear associated with knowing that he was being transferred to his death. I mean, it, it sounds unreal. Could you explain to everyone a little more in depth on why would someone pursue a wrongful death suit when there were no criminal charges put in place? So there's a variety of circumstances that can lead to a death that can't result in a criminal prosecution for a variety of reasons. For example, privileges such as self-defense or defense of others, uh, law enforcement's quote unquote justified use of force or an uncharged accident or unknown assailants. Agencies like the Bureau of Prisons and the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections can be held responsible for these deaths when they occur in their custody and they fail to meet the minimum standard of care that's necessary um, and appropriate to provide the inmates in their institutions. They can't just let the inmates murder each other. They have an affirmative obligation to make sure that people who are incarcerated are safely incarcerated. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, it's got to be someone's worst nightmare. I mean, you know that they're taking care of police that get charged and, and put in jail uh, to make sure that they are not harmed when they're in there. You would think that someone with such a reputation, such a high profile case would be taken care of and made sure that, you know, something like this would not happen. You would really think so, Erica. And it never faced, it never fails to amaze me when the law and order flag waving blue lives matter crowd refuses to impose and support law and order it seems like for that group of people the only people the only way that law and order actually applies when it comes to their is when it comes to their own and their own friends and speaking of pieces of human trash erica did you see brandy mura out of the alabama department of human resources got sent to prison for 15 years for actions that took innocent children from their innocent parents forever. I mean, this is one of the most disheartening things that I've heard in a long time since the border stories of their children being separated from their parents forever. I mean, this is just, whenever somebody does that on purpose, it doesn't matter the reason behind it. It's it's just heartbreaking. What did the state forensics agent do exactly? In her capacity as the owner of an accredited testing laboratory, Mura created false lab reports of parents' mandatory drug screens, both urine and hair and falsified results saying that the parents had tested positive for a range of drugs, including methamphetamine, marijuana, and cocaine. Investigators suspect that after she fell behind in paying the agency's outside contractors for testing, she collected specimens, but simply stopped submitting the tests for actual testing and just started making up whatever results she wanted. We call this dry batching. She submitted those, those 
results to the state agency and claimed them to be legitimate lab results. She did this to two parents who have already won civil lawsuits against her, as well as potentially thousands of other parents who have yet to discover that their children were taken from there and their parental rights terminated because of a lazy, malicious, dishonest thief. I absolutely agree with you. It's unbelievable that she would do something like that instead of just filing for bankruptcy or something like that. You'd go and ruin hundreds of families' lives. Um, so it seems like this might be a hard thing for them to detect, and I'm not sure how long it went on for, but what was it that actually led them to find her crime? Once again, Erica, the tragedy of the American criminal justice system that you get the justice that you can afford to pay for rings true. One mother in particular had tested positive for meth and marijuana, but she knew she had been sober for more than 90 days. So she went out and secured her own hair follicle test. Additionally, the mother did something that any good attorney would do. She looked into the results of the lab report that she was given and she called the doctor and started asking questions. Through that phone call, the doctor discovered that his name was being used on the reports of testing that he never conducted. And the fraud scheme began to unravel from there. My gosh, he must have been so surprised to hear about that. So what stands out about this case to you in particular? The sentencing range in this case was extraordinary. Murrah had pled guilty to 17 counts ranging from felony perjury um, to 16 additional counts of misdemeanor forgery. Her sentencing range under Alabama law was from zero years, she could have gotten probation all the way up to 90 years. Her defense team sought to argue at the sentencing hearing that she should have been allowed work release or probation given her admission of guilt. However, the judge was disturbed by the possibility of thousands of children being ripped from their parents and ripped from their homes and the parental rights of those uh, ostensibly law-abiding individuals uh, terminated for all time. Um, and the judge imposed 15 years with no work release or a probationary term. Murrah may become eligible for early release depending on Alabama's specific laws, and she will likely appeal the sentence, although appeals of guilty pleas are a very difficult task and are rarely successful. What I think the biggest tragedy about this case is, is that in, in cases of termination of parental rights, even though we have now discovered that these parents' rights were terminated without any valid basis, these parents will never get their children back because the courts will find that finality in those judgments is more important than getting the reason for the termination correct. So this woman has absolutely ruined thousands of families. And in my opinion, you, Erica, you know, I'm, I'm willing to forgive just about anything. I think people make mistakes and, and they deserve the opportunity to, to correct those mistakes and move forward with their lives. But this woman, in my opinion, can rot forever. Oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, I, it leaves me speechless to even think about someone being that evil. Well, Erica, the reality is, is that they're out there 
and entirely too many of them are in law enforcement, just like this woman, which is why we have to be vigilant. And on that note, let's move on to our featured topic. Now, the double jeopardy clause of the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution prohibits the government from prosecuting individuals more than once for a single offense and from imposing more than one punishment for a single offense. Specifically, it provides that no person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life and limb. Erica, do you know what put in jeopardy of life and limb means? No, I'd love to hear where that saying comes from. The idea of jeopardy is the risk, right? It, jeopardy means the risk of having something taken away or the risk of losing something. So in this case, uh, although America has not maimed people as a consequence for criminal conduct, um, America has always had the death penalty. So life and limb means the, the potential to lose your freedom or your life. Oh, that's good to know. Now, if I'm ever playing the real Jeopardy and they ask that question, I'll know. So where does the protection from double Jeopardy come from? The concept of double Jeopardy is one of the oldest in Western civilization. Back in 355 BC, the Athenian statesman Demosthenes said that the law forbids the same man to be tried twice on the same issue. And the Romans codified this in the digest of Justinian in 533 AD. Now in England, our common law ancestor, eminent jurists like Coke, Hale, and Blackstone embraced double jeopardy and its principles as a universal maxim of common law. However, it's very limited in its scope, applied only to those accused of capital crimes and only after a conviction or acquittal in those times. Now, American colonists remembered this narrow definition. And when they met during the Constitutional Convention, James Madison helped craft the wider definition that we in the United States use today. So double jeopardy applies to situations where a charge is dismissed with prejudice or an acquittal after a trial occurs. It does not apply to dismissals without prejudice, which is the vast majority of dismissals that we see in the criminal justice system. Double jeopardy does not protect someone from a civil lawsuit for the same acts. Double jeopardy does not protect somebody from being prosecuted by more than one jurisdiction. In the United States, we have dual sovereignty. So there is the United States government that can prosecute you for the same conduct that your state government can prosecute you for. For example, in 1991 in Los Angeles, several police officers were involved in the vicious beating of the motorist Rodney King. Now, because of this, that case's tremendous publicity, the court changed venue to Ventura County in Southern California. The Ventura jury acquitted the officers on all but one of the charges. And on that one, it was a hung verdict. Now, that sparked the riots of 1992 the 1992 LA riots. Months later, a federal grand jury indicted the officers for the same beating under a law punishing anyone who acting under government authority violates a person's federal constitutional rights. A federal jury ultimately convicted two of the four officers under federal law and the prosecutors 
invoked that, uh, that law, that rule in many excessive use forces, excessive force use cases, um, and have continued to use that. Another example is the case of Michael Vick, a, a former NFL quarterback. Now, federal authorities had charged him for running an interstate dogfighting business because it involved dog executions, gambling, and a variety of other illegalities. The federal court sentenced him to 23 months in prison. The state of Virginia separately prosecuted Vic for the dogfighting ring. And after his federal conviction was concluded, he remained in custody and pled guilty to a state charge. Now, the state charge sentence was essentially folded into, or uh, the, the phrase is run concurrent with his federal sentence. Um, but he was still prosecuted and convicted. Brian, I just hated that whole Michael Vick thing. <laughs> but I, 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 mean, I don't want anyone to be treated wrongly in the criminal justice system. But gosh, that was a hard one to take. Um, so how can double jeopardy argument be used to benefit the accused? And I'm sure that a skilled criminal defense attorney like yourself has got some pretty interesting strategies. What we frequently do is we secure global resolutions to charges that involve potentially state and federal uh, allegations. Likewise, when an offender has a, a series of offenses across various jurisdictions, we again try to reach a global resolution to, to take care of all of those. So we don't end up with a variety of consecutive sentences back to back to back to back to back. Now, recognizing the double jeopardy issue is often very difficult and it requires a thorough investigation and it requires a very open and honest relationship between the attorney and the accused. Now, a trial lawyer will make sure to litigate this defense in particular through motions and even trial practice by ensuring that the particular conduct being uh, litigated in the trial is the conduct that uh, can potentially preclude future charges, regardless of the jurisdiction. Well, I mean, I, I, honestly, the I learned a lot about Double Jeopardy from the movie Double Jeopardy. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that one. Um, but that was a one of the Judd sisters, I think Naomi was in that, and not Naomi, no Ashley, Ashley, Ashley right? Um, yeah, and so that that was pretty interesting. Uh, she had a sleazeball husband who faked his death, and she got charged with it. And you know, when she got out, she was able to actually kill him. So, I mean, it just goes to show. It does. And, you know, like many movie situations, Double Jeopardy wouldn't apply to her on a, on a variety of levels, not the least of which is federal authorities very well may have been able to prosecute her. If I recall correctly, uh, they traveled interstate uh, during the course of that movie. So she might have been subject to a federal prosecution. Uh, I believe she also ultimately killed him with a gun. And so the gun having traveled in interstate commerce would expose her to federal jurisdiction. See, they should have hired you as a consultant on that movie because you could have told them the ins and outs on how they could have made it even more realistic. Or really just any criminal defense attorney to consult on that movie. There are a variety of ways that you could have actually created a scenario in which double jeopardy would apply. Um, and, and educating the public properly um, could have made for a very interesting story. Regardless, it is what it is. Um, Erica, I really thank you for joining me today. And I want to thank all of our listeners for um, you know, coming in and listening to our podcast today. 
to make sure that you stay informed about all of the police and government misconduct um, and how those officials are being held accountable for their misconduct, the Fifth Amendment and all of its various clauses and all of your constitutional and civil rights, check out the law office of BrianJones.com or find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense. You can find us on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at TLOBJ. We'll be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in the news about civil rights and the criminal injustice system, as well as an in-depth discussion of evidence-based practices and their importance to the criminal injustice system. Erica, my grandfather always told me, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And to that, with all of my friends, I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine to defend.